I can do things that wet without asking anybody, even my Coney wife. Coney Island, world's biggest barrel of fun. Anywhere else your imagination takes you. Okay, we've done that now, Mark. You get all shown out, you hurry, hurry, hurry. Anything's possible at Disneyland. Welcome aboard the Themed Attraction Podcast, where we take you for a ride through the wonderful world of theme park design, that is. You've just joined us for an exciting voyage to discover the who, what, why, and how they did it via in-depth discussions with theme park industry masters of the craft. I'm your skipper, Freddie Martin, and we've got a very special ghostly episode for you tonight. Mel is off on a secret tiki trading mission, so I took a different course to explore one of the most mysterious and darkly fascinating stories in all of themed entertainment, the development and execution of Disneyland's original Haunted Mansion. To do so, I sought out one of the key experts on the subject, former creative executive for Walt Disney Imagineering, Tom Morris. Now, Tom knows a little something about building theme parks and attractions, so who better to dig up the archaeology of Disney's eeriest e-ticket attraction? All right, you ready to go, folks? Keep your hands, arms, feet, and legs inside the boat, because this episode is about to leave the dock. Hit it, Sam. Hey folks, uh, since we are flying solo today uh, with Mel McGowan uh, of Storyland Studios uh, not at my side this time, uh, I got a little bit spontaneous and I I called up Tom Morris. Uh, Tom Morris is a former creative director uh, for uh, Walt Disney Imagineering, a good friend of the show. He was actually our first guest and um, just been very supportive of us. And uh, we're supportive of the great stuff that he's working on, uh, which we'll get into here in a little bit. Um, For those of you who don't know Tom Morris's work, uh, you should. Um, He uh, started uh, one of his first projects with Imagineering was the Journey into Imagination attraction at Epcot, which uh, he was part of designing that turntable ride system that everybody still talks about. He worked on sections of Horizons there in Epcot and then uh, um, was a key part of the creation of the new Fantasyland at Disneyland in 1983. Um, He's the guy who's responsible for adding the music to Space Mountain at Disneyland. Um, He also, uh, well, designed a little thing called the Sleeping Beauty Castle at Disneyland Paris. I mean, this is a guy with some creative chops. He's uh, part of the Carsland team and uh, executive producer at uh, not one, uh, but two Disney theme parks, Hong Kong Disneyland and Walt Disney Studios in Paris. So, uh, But he's not finished. Tom is currently researching material for several books, which will unearth and piece together much of the lost history of Disneyland's development and construction. Uh, this is the archaeology of Disneyland at its best. So um, thinking through the 50th anniversary of the Haunted Mansion, uh, I wanted to commemorate it by hearing from this one person who has made a second career out of studying studying the literal bones of the park and especially the Haunted Mansion. Um, Big fan of that as well as uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, especially all of New Orleans Square and its fascinating um, structure and and, uh, construction. So um, we... uh, 
uh, I reached out to Tom, asked him to meet me at a local outdoor mall for a chat about the mansion's history and to resurrect some of its most mysterious secrets. So here it is, my interview uh, with Tom Morris about the 50th anniversary of Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. Well, Tom, thank you for being here tonight. This is really exciting for me. And uh, we're here at uh, on the eve of the Haunted Mansion's 50th anniversary, uh, also on the eve of <laughs> the 50th anniversary of Charles Manson's um, oh, right. big date. Um, yeah, so uh, here we are. You know, you had the moon, and you had uh, Kennedy going off the bridge, and Manson and Mansion, all within about... I think all within about four weeks yeah. or three weeks. Yeah. Um, so uh, strangely enough, or uh, um, <laughs> yeah, it's such a cheery thing. I, I just saw the uh, Tarantino movie. I've seen it twice yeah. now. It's just so, so fun. It's a, it's really a trip back, but um, we're, vi- we're um, for listeners. You're going to hear a lot of noise around us because we are here at the village at Topanga, which is a really uh, cool outdoor mall sort of a garden inside the city, a space for families to come and enjoy shopping and food, et cetera. Um, newly built in the last uh, few years. Uh, but it, uh, this is my big transition to Tom Morris, it uh, was built on the bones of a place that I grew up coming here to do mini golf. I saw some of the, the great movies that, I mean, I, I know I saw um, uh, some some of the Star Wars movies here. I know I saw Tombstone here. Um, I uh, but uh, and then there was even on the bones of that uh, was built a, a pumpkin patch. You know how pumpkin patches yeah. can have yeah. haunted mansions right. and then their own uh, yeah. Christmas village. The Christmas thing. Yeah, I yeah. proposed something like that one time. That would be year round. That would do um, you know all the holidays. So yeah. Easter and Fourth um, of July. Yeah, it'd be there all the time. Yeah, that'd be super. Yeah. So, so that that trend, that makes me think um, of what uh, the work that you are have, have done and are doing in researching a project um, that gets you to see the archaeology, the bones of what was there before in Disney parks, specifically Disneyland. Tell, talk to me about that fascination you have with digging uh, beneath the, digging, the, yeah. the dirt. I like tunnels and caves, <laughs> <laughs> tunnels and caverns and and caves. Um, I've Tom always Sawyer. intrigued me. Tom Sawyer. Tom Sawyer Island was my favorite attraction uh, for a long time at Disneyland when I was little. And, um, you know, I grew up at the beach, so building sand castles and tunnels uh, was always really interesting. And um, then the National Geographics were kind of like one of my favorite things to read. And so those always had interesting um, features that had the acetate overlays that you would go through and see the progression of a civilization or the de-evolution of a civilization um, over time, uh, just using those cell overlays. And so um, I'm always kind of thinking, you know, cell overlay, cell overlay. Uh, When I'm trying to like explain the chronology of something, it's like, I wish I had some cell overlays with me. So, Wow, I don't know where to begin with all of the, you know, I could, this, become, this could become very rambling, but I did start kind of gathering information and material when I started working at 
imagineering, just out of my own curiosity, like as I, you know, happen to be researching something or see something on someone's desk, that's really cool. Can I get a copy of that? Sure. And I put it in my files and then I would study it sometimes because um, my big thing was for a little while was just to figure out why there were rumors about the Haunted Mansion for a long time. Yeah. That was one kind of area of interest. And the other was Pirates of the Caribbean because I just loved the loved that attraction. I loved how it was laid out. Um, and there was something very mysterious about it, how it kind of defied space and time. Like, how did we, you know, it seems like you're gone for so long. Where did we go? You know, where did, where did all that fit in there? And um, so that always intrigued me. So kind of getting to the bottom of how exactly that was laid out and why sometimes, you know, um, something was done a certain way. And so I just, you know, kept clip files, my own clip files. Um, and then, you know, those files just sat for years and years because I was so busy. Yeah, right. So busy with, you know, you just get busier and busier at Imagineering and traveling and living in different countries and things like that. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, and then I would say that sometime around, um, you know, maybe just five, about five years ago, I was doing some synergy projects. So that uh, gave me exposure to some of the folks in um, Disney publishing and other areas of the company that were involved with books and publishing. And um, I remember just throwing out an idea randomly, like, what about an archaeology of Disneyland kind of book? And, the, and, you know, I think I had mentioned it maybe years before, and they're like, you and a party of one. <laughs> Yeah, well, you're right, you know, maybe at the time. But this time when I said it, everyone kind of lit up yeah, yeah, yeah. and said, how soon can you have that? Or do you know someone who's doing that? I go, well, I w have been thinking about doing that. And they said, well, how, how, when do you think you could have it? Yeah, well, and um, I said, not until I'm gone because I have no time to work. You know, I, I can slowly work on it, but I, you know, I can't jump on that right now. So um, I left about um, two or three, three years ago now, and, um, and they're still, I think they're still interested in that idea. Um, they were the last time I spoke with them, but the, you know, all these books are three, four, five years out. And so um, as I continued to slowly kind of organize material for that, another opportunity came up to do a book that was just focused on New Orleans Square and the history of that. And so I um, continued to go over to the archives and other resources, because um, there are magnificent resources all over the world <laughs> and here in Southern California that have little uh, collections that have things that Disney doesn't have. And as I went through those um, collections and kind of deep dived a little bit. I found myself in some rabbit holes that had never been explored before, but even more importantly, names I had never, important names, well, names of people who seemed to have done important things that I, I had never heard of. And I was at Imagineering for a very long time, and I thought I knew who all our forefathers and mothers were. <laughs> and um, And all of a sudden, I'm you know, hearing about new names. Uh, a, a name came up, Ted Rich. Um, I, have I heard of that name before? I don't know. His name appears on a lot of the New Orleans Square uh, architectural, detailed um, drawings of New Orleans Square. 
And so I figure, oh, he's one of the draftsmen working on that, probably an architect. And two weeks later, I talked with Glenn Durflinger and I asked him, I said, who designed, who actually, like, if you could give credit to someone, I guess, for the castle in Florida, who, who would that be? Would it be Bill Martin or would it be you because he worked on it? And he said, no, Ted Rich. Ted, it's, this, is the, this is Ted Rich's castle. Wow. Really? Yeah. Wow, I think I had just seen that in his name on New Orleans Square drawings. He goes, oh, yeah, he also New Orleans Square. The, I, and I said, so, like, you would say Ted Rich kind of drew up all those facades. And, like, this one will be an iron balcony, and this one will be a little more Spanish here with a little half window. Yeah, Ted did all the key elevations, and then everyone followed that. And Bill Martin, as architect or, and, and art director, was responsible for the whole thing in kind of an oversight way, but someone had to sit down on a board and and figure it out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Ted would be credited as being the supervising animator if the analogy was animation. But yet his name is sort of lost to the totally to the history. Lost. Uh, totally lost. But it came up again a month later when I went to Tanya McKnight's, or there was a, a Ryman event um, at the home of Tanya McKnight, who purported to be an Imagineer from the 60s and friend of Herb Ryman. And so, well, I got to check this out. And, the, and it <laughs> turned out to be very true. A very good friend of Herb's and uh, Mark Davis and um, all those folks. Mm-hmm. And so I sat down and talked with her for a little bit and then followed up with an interview a week or so later. And she said the exact same thing about both the casts, well, about the castle, for sure. She seemed to think Bob Brown, um, Walt's son-in-law, also had a lot to do with New Orleans Square, but mo- more the interiors than the um, exteriors. So now, all of a sudden, Ted Rich, three times in almost a month. Uh, but no one else has heard of him. <laughs> he was only there for about four or five years. Um, he doesn't pop up on the internet anywhere. He's someone I've got to try to track down. Um, some of the other folks that I'll be interviewing, I'm sure, who were there in the 60s, uh, will remember him. So that was one name. Tanya was another, you know. Um, I knew about Dean Tavalaris because I started in show set design and my boss, George Windrum, at the time, and this is back in the early 80s, told me about this guy named Dean Tavalaris who was in the department a long time ago when it was at the studio. And I said, oh, that's interesting. And he said, yeah, it's very interesting because now he just did Apocalypse Now. He just finished that film, and he did all of Coppola. He's, he did the three Godfather films and these other films that he mentioned. I go, that's really cool. Yeah. And then kind of like forgot about that for years. And then as I dove into the Haunted Mansion uh, more and more, all of a sudden his name is showing up on the architectural drawings done in 1962 of the house. The actual the key elevations of that home uh, are done by Dean Tavalara. So, okay, now he's on my radar again. Um, well, is he alive? I don't know. So I Google him. Oh, he's more than alive. He just got a AFI Lifetime Achievement Award. And he's and, and so someone someone hunted down his number uh, and an email, I think. And I emailed him, and I got a response a couple weeks later. And then I in, in January or February, I went over there to interview him. And he brought up some more names. Mm-hmm. William Tuntke was a name that he brought up as a contemporary of his. 
there in the who was in the drafting department for quite a while working on Disneyland projects and he went on to become an art director um, at the studio on Mary Poppins among other films um, almost every other film uh, done by Disney in the 60s and probably halfway through the 70s and we, he went on to do TV television and um, TV shows uh, Mayberry and things like that uh, so he was in that department working on Disneyland projects. Carol Clark, uh, who was the other art director on Mary Poppins and goes back to the 20s, <laughs> um, was there uh, intermittently working on Disneyland projects, including the Haunted Mansion. And um, Marvin Davis, of course, uh, who w went on from Disneyland to do films starting around 57 or 58 and came back to Imagineering. So he felt that um, Marvin Davis was his, kind of his mentor. And um, so, and Marvin Davis put Dean on the Haunted Mansion elevations, architectural. So, wow. um, so there's, you know, so I keep getting these, you know, more and more names that I've never heard of before. Yeah. So it's like, okay, damn it. I'm going to have to, uh, <laughs> I'm going to have to focus on, on this because a lot of these folks are, some of them are still around and some of them are recently passed, uh, but some of them are still in the memory of people who are, you know, in their seventies and eighties right now. And so I've got to track down those people, talk with them about. Um, so I switched gears and, and with the approval of the um, people who wanted to publish the new Orleans book, uh, I said, let's put this one first. Let's do this and get this going. And, because time is of the essence on this. And I really, I want to get it done in like a year. Um, I'm not going to be able to do a bio of every single, that was, I originally, I'm like, okay, I'm going to do a little bio on every Imagineer. That touched this thing. Up to 1970. I never intended to go beyond 1970 because I know that the, the, uh, <clears throat> the head count goes yeah. up logarithmically, uh, logarithmically after um, 1970. So I figured I'd be dealing with a couple hundred heads that people hadn't heard of before, in addition to the heads that they've already heard of. But the count is up around 800 right now. And so I'm not going to be able to track, you know, some of those people came, were, you know, came in for a year right. and left and no one remembers who they are. Um, so I, I will at least list them all out and the years that they worked there and in most cases the department um, that they were in. And, um, but the more interesting stories will go into a paragraph or a page on, on these interesting individuals that, you know, we haven't heard of that did some of the things that you really love. You know, the guy who designed the Pirates of the Caribbean marquee. Yeah, yeah right. He's around. <laughs> you can talk he's, to him. He's in Pasadena. <laughs> I just found him. You know, I, I haven't talked. He doesn't, you know. Some of these people don't know what's going to hit them when I call, I guess. <laughs> That's right. Well, um, you know, it's so fascinating, too, about the Haunted Mansion is there's so much rumor and um, mistaken yeah. truths and, and things like that. And you're digging in. You're, to, you're talking about you're, you're having to discover the different people who were involved. Yeah. It's not like there's a full record of everything that went into it or even the reasoning behind certain decisions. Right. And I think that, too, is what you're picking right. up. And so that helps you to not just dispel rumors, but uh, explode more of what the story yes. really was about, not just yes. of, the, of the attraction itself, but 
How did this thing come to be? The, the last bit of my focus is kind of, you know, exactly what it ended up to be because that's been so covered. You know, we all know what it is and people cover kind of every iteration of it, every little yeah. change. And that's not the focus. And also the Ken Anderson version is not my focus because there are others that are uh, more knowledgeable about that than I am. I'm covering the part that was my childhood, which was this house shows up one day in Disneyland and, oh, how cool. Can we go in? No, but next year you can. Yeah. Not. <laughs> and, um, and I remember the rumors. So, and the rumors were um, strong. You know, they were um, persistent in, in a time when there, were, when there was no internet or social media. So I think that's one of the reasons I started um, collecting aerial photographs and things like that of... The haunted mansion and and just you know going through the research and whatever research they had in the library at imagineering um i would read you know just to see well is there any was there any validity yeah. to that um you know did was you know was there any place to have even put something because um like i i swear i remember even reading news articles you know a little newspaper thing that it opened it closed right. or heard it on tv and then i thought no that's my imagination going off again and then i talked to other people and they go i remember yeah. hearing a thing on the you know local nbc news about it yeah <laughs> uh, well and i remember my dad was a ride operator for um a couple seasons at disneyland and that was 67 and he was almost on the opening crew of pirates but the opening summer of pirates so he worked uh, on pirates from about April '67 through to the next um, Christmas, I guess. As a, you know, he's a high school teacher, so they do that on the holidays and everything. And I remember him coming home one time and saying, "I think they opened up the the haunted mansion." And and I go, "Oh, when when are we going?" He's like, "Well, they closed it." Yeah. I go, "Well, where did you?" You know, well, everyone was saying, you know, it was like going around the park. Yeah. Wow. You know, and um, and then collective imagination. Collective imagination. You know. Um, and so pretty soon, once I worked at Imagineering, it was pretty clear there was never any place to have really put anything. But what, you know, sometimes there is some kernel of truth that can cause a rumor to get misinterpreted or, you know, overtold, like a game of telephone or something where it becomes embellished and it takes on a life of its own. So what are the things that could have... Um, stimulated that or caused that to happen. So that was always just kind of a thing in the back of my head, like, you know, someday, you know, there must be some information somewhere. Maybe someone got hurt in there or something, a cast member and, you know, twisted an ankle or something. And so one of my things was like, one of my centers of interest was, I wonder if the elevators were always in there. Like, was it just a big empty box with, a, you know, two holes in the floor? boarded up or something maybe that could have been the the source of one of the rumors which was a, a woman fell in a snake pit or someone fell into a pit yeah um so <laughs> so i remember like maybe the first couple within the first couple of years i started at imagineering um i a started asking around to people who would know and i you know got kind of the weirdest answers like you know first of all it's just like you know, quash that rumor once and for all. I'm like, well, I'm not trying to start a rumor. I'm just trying to find out what the source of a rumor might, yeah, yeah. you know. Um, and 
you know, so the issue about the haunt or the stretching rooms was like, no, they were nothing was in there. There was just this instant reaction of there was never anything in that house. Well, I, that's, that's not really what I'm asking. I'm, you know, like I'm not saying that something happened in that house. I'm just wondering if the elevators were there because you, you know, it's obviously built for the elevators, and so. And you wouldn't want holes in the floor in a room where people might, you know, maintenance people might wander in and fall or something. Yeah, and they wouldn't have they wouldn't have dug the holes no. while the building was up, right? Right, right. So as I discovered, really good aerial photos um, of that. You know, you can see that there's just a big empty concrete bunker below that. But yeah, that it would have made sense to put the elevators in there, but. Um, Everyone that I asked said, no, no, why would they have done that? You know, they, they, all we did was build the house. And then in 1969, we did the show. Okay. And then eventually I came across information that indicated that the elevators were, they certainly were designed in place because they're in the architectural and structural uh, construction drawings of 62. And, um, and then there's some purchase orders. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, that's good. Purchase orders, okay. yeah. Now tell me about that. So, because um, there's this nerdy factor to what it is that you're doing. You're having to go to books and sit in the archives, the Disney archives, for hours of, at, on end looking through. T- tell me what the kind of things that you're looking through that are well, giving you these clues. I'm finding for the Haunted Mansion, I'm doing at the archives, uh, but there is some, some of that. Uh, right now on the archives, this is on the new book that's not anything about the Haunted Mansion, which is the, um, the, basically the archaeology of Imagineering uh, or the untold you know, early beginnings of Imagineering up to 1970. So where, where did they work out of? This is another question I must have asked a dozen people in the know, executives. But the thing is, almost every executive or person, you know, who had any kind of tenure there that I asked didn't start at WED until 62 when it moved to Glendale. Uh-huh. Uh, I didn't ask the right people. You know, I could have asked Claude and I never thought to ask, you know, or Mark Davis or, um, well, Mark didn't, Mark started in 62 also, 61, when they moved to Glendale. So there's a whole group of people that never worked WED when it was at the studio. They started in 61 when WED moved to Glendale. Yeah. So people didn't know where WED was at the studio, and I got as many answers. They were in the boxcars. Yeah. Okay, what are the boxcars? You know? Oh, they were some uh, train boxcars that were brought over from the Hyperion studio. Wrong. They were never train boxcars, literally. They were nicknamed boxcars because they were long, narrow buildings. Uh, it was on the Zorro lot. It was in the Zorro building. It was in the annex. No, it was just there was no WED office. They were all in different they were all in their individual offices in the animation. animation Right, exactly. (laughs) Except in 55, there was only one or two people from animation that were working on Disneyland. There were another 90 (laughs) people (laughs) working on, you know, really working on it. Um, So uh, it was in the animation building. And it was in a very specific location. And um, so I am, and, and the, the studio phone directories are pretty explicit about, you know, where people are within that building uh, and even what room 
they're in. So, so you've you've dug deep to figure out that this. Okay, the story of the haunted mansion is the thing that people start to focus on. Well, how did it get to where it is? There's a, there's mystery surrounding even what the story was supposed to be, or or whatever that is. And then to go one layer deeper, you realize that there that there's mystery. In, in the entirety of uh, the building of this thing, because nobody kept any decent records. You didn't even, as you were just saying, you don't even know where people were sitting in their, te- or what, what offices or places that they were working in. So um, as, as you're going deeper, I wanted to kind of uh, ask you about those uh, aerial uh, photography. So uh, let's talk about a couple of things that maybe you have discovered as you've gone, just by whether you're looking at the aerial photography or uh, specific um, things that just went, ah, that's how it was. Because actually, I saw one of your slide presentations where you showed, you know, that the tunnel that uh, used to go out there for parades, yeah. uh, that became something. So uh, t- talk through some of the discoveries you've made so far. Well, the the shell, the um, underground, not really underground, but it's kind of a culvert, um, concrete, a concrete uh, ditch, if you will, I guess, under the train track, under the haunted mansion which would eventually contain the uh, corridor of haunted portraits and the exit and the loading area. Um, Sat there as a big kind of concrete bunker uh, built in 1962. And in 66, I think, and I don't know how, for how long, but sometime around 66, uh, for maybe a year or so, it was a storage area and halftime area for the, parade that would go from town square i guess at that time it went through frontierland and i yeah and i guess it went maybe through Indi- i don't know how it got back there actually I, I i need to ask some people about how it got back there but then as it waited for you know four or five hours to do the afternoon parade it was stored under the haunted mansion there and you can see that in some aerial photographs um so it's really cool. You know, you can see like gingerbread men. <laughs> In a place you wouldn't yeah, imagine. Exactly. And there were lockers, you know, I think down there uh, for maybe some of the cast. And uh, you know who would know is Ben Harris. Um, I think he knows a lot about that. And um, there's still quite a few people who remember that. Yeah, yeah. And um, so, in, you know, that could have been a source of rumor, you know, or speculation. Uh, because they, um, a couple times they had to go in and do adjustments to the elevators, which were there the whole time. Um, and you, because they're there the whole time, they, they have to be run, you know, like a car. You got to run a car a couple times a year. So I guess they'd have to run the elevators. Uh, they had to make some adjustments on them. Uh, a friend of mine's, it is, you know, all of this stuff is so convoluted and crazy, right? So a friend of mine his uncle just happened to work for the engineer who engineered the stretching rooms. It was a, you know, outside company. And he has some documents that talk about uh, them going back in in 64 to uh, make some adjustments because as they tested those elevators in place, it caused the house to shake uh, when, if they were operating at the same time. So that's something they hadn't thought of, I guess, or something. So they had to, to, you know, do fine-tuning to the cables and everything. Well, as you have contractors coming in and out of there doing work, people could be thinking, oh, they're starting up. They're going to do it now. They're going to do, and that gets the thing going. It's going to, you know, they're going to do it. Plus, you've got uh, handouts and things that say, we're, you know, 
coming soon. Coming soon. <laughs> you know, sometimes it says coming in 63 yes. or coming in 64. So, um, you know, all of that, I think, kept that it's going to open soon. Oh, how come it isn't open? Oh, something must have happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So um, I think, you know, a lot of that was that. There was some concrete work that they had to redo um, at one point. Um, you know, the, as you go through that train tunnel, yeah. uh, it's rock work in there, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't one at, uh, at, at Disneyland. Yeah. Uh, the, uh, the one that's from New, between New Orleans Square. Yeah, yeah. after the station. Yeah. After the New Orleans Square station and you go behind the Haunted Mansion, you go into a rock work tunnel. It wasn't always rock work. And Tony Baxter will tell you about, you know, as a, as a kid going on the train and looking right down into, the, into that concrete culvert. And he knew it wasn't going to be open soon, as long as there was daylight, yeah. you know, <laughs> down there. And, um, and so at one point, uh, they're doing a walk, Walt and group are walking through, and Walt notices that they haven't put a tunnel in there. It was supposed to have, it was designed with that tunnel, so yeah. that's on the 62 drawings where someone cut it, you know, and so... A couple weeks later, the tunnel's there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, uh, so you're seeing probably a construction group come in there, yeah. you know, working a crew coming in there, doing plaster work. And, yeah. you know, tr- you have crafts. As you, got, you got some crafts in there doing some work. And so uh, now it's got to really be opening, yeah, you know. Right. And then a, there's a trading card that comes out in 1965. There's a series of uh, Disneyland 10th anniversary trading cards. Uh-huh. Um, and one of them is the Haunted Mansion, and there's a bunch of kids standing in front of... Yeah, and it says, opening next year. <laughs> so it just keeps going on and on. Yeah. And uh, there's another thing that... Oh, the Jonathan Winters special. Okay. Yeah. Yes. So they film a special down in the culvert <laughs> and on the berm around it. Um, and so, you know, who knows? A film crew down there and a bunch of work going on down there. It's just... Off and on, there's work going on down there, which could cause cast members to say, you know, oh, there's, you know, they're starting it up. Well, cast members have lots of friends and lots of family, and so then lots of dinner table. And where I grew up, there were a lot of Disney people um, in positions of, you know, um, either design positions or executive positions. One of them was Emil Curie, so he would have been in charge of interiors. Uh, and Walt's apartment. And I remember my sister one time telling me, the Haunted Mansion's never going to open. Well, why not? Because Walt's going to move into it. So that's a reworking, you know, a a bad telephone game of uh, something that was actually true. And, you know, I always wonder, well, was that Emile Curie's daughter who went to the schools in my area? And um, it was probably, she was probably the same age as my sister, older. And um, so maybe that's, you know, where that came from. So, you know, all these rumors and, you know, like I said, they were, they weren't amongst Disney. There was no such thing as Disney nerds. Yeah, right. Uh, It was just, you know, kids on the playground and it was an interesting thing. Yeah. And sometimes you'd hear your parents talking about it or your older siblings. 
Yeah, and I think it's what's funny too is that the the opening of this thing that you couldn't pay for the marketing value of delaying that right. thing for. Uh, as many years as it was delayed because um, the the people who are in charge of making that thing happen are probably sweating. Some people are losing their jobs. You know, we should have had this open a long, long time ago. And yet it's creating this um, public consciousness that says there is mystery here. This might be real. Sometimes I even wonder if there was someone in the publicity department who was seeding the the rumors. Um, Because, you know, in their best interest, maybe not anyone else's, but... Just to keep the excitement and, and, and you know, in the news and yeah. um, I don't know. You know. I have nothing to, to you know, prove that. But um, it certainly was a very persistent rumor back in the day before, you know, you can electronically spread a rumor. Yeah. And uh, so that was part of the fascination, I guess, of, of the Haunted Mansion. And it's still, you know, fascinating uh, from a construction and from a, just, you know, the story of how they made certain decisions and a lot will, you know, a lot is in my presentation um, that I show sometimes, usually to kind of closed groups. But um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of new, there's a lot of information out there and it's, you know, and there's nothing, you know, nefarious or anything like that. It's all good, you know, just the process of designing and, and the fact that in 1962, that was really the busiest, probably the busiest, busiest time of Walt Disney's life in terms of generating ideas. So they had just finished um, 1959, you know, all the expansion for that. And Walt was really becoming interested in a lot of things. And they were also, you know, they were, they were going to do a Wizard of Oz thing in Fantasyland. And that kind of goes on hold. And Liberty Square, Edison, uh, all those things you see on the Sam, Sam McKim map. But I think they focused their attention on the west side of the park to balance, basically just better distribute the crowds. Um, and, uh, and they also needed food. I remember reading that in some, maybe it was a Buzz Price uh, report uh, that they needed more food, uh, food capacity, and that drove, I think, the basement uh, where, where they'd have a central kitchen. This is the same time Walt's becoming interested in um, urban planning, basements, utilidors, um, beginning to think about a futuristic city somewhere. Then the World's Fair, they were talking about St. Louis. They were talking about a second gate even, you know, or a small, you know, you've probably heard Todd Pierce's thing about the California living. I mean, that was really a thing that was serious. And um, there's a lot, a lot going on on Walt's plate. And I think that, you know, they they bit off a little bit more than they could chew in 1962. But they they had to expand the train tracks. They had business people saying so and operations people saying you need to make the park physically bigger. And I think someone, you know, dictated that as long as we're pulling the track out and we need all this food capacity, then let's dig a pit and put all the food, centralize the food, put it down there. And, uh, and they were also in 1960, 61, 62, it was on their agenda to begin developing audio animatronics. And that term comes up, you know, as early as 1960. And it's referenced with respect to the Wax Museum as one of the places to launch the technology. Talk about that, the Wax Museum. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know a lot about the Wax Museum that, you know, I don't know much more than anyone else uh, who's read about it or seen 
uh, what little artwork there is on it. But I, I believe that it was never intended to be literally a wax museum, that it was, that was the pretense. And then you would go in and then these tableau would come to life. Yeah, 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 yeah. And also it wasn't meant to be very long, meant to be a walkthrough. Mm-hmm. So it was, I think they were in the middle of digging the hole yeah. when the decision was made because, okay, you're going to hear it here first. Pirates of the Caribbean boat ride precedes It's a Small World uh-huh. as a boat ride. So they start designing a pirate boat test track before there is even a notion of, before Pepsi-Cola comes onto the scene. Mm-hmm. And um, so I thought I was dreaming or smoking something, <laughs> but I don't smoke. Yeah. Uh, and then here it shows up on an aerial photograph, a test track for Pirates of the Caribbean, uh, preceding the test track that they built with Arrow up in Mountain View. And it's in the parking lot of um, the studio in early 1963. Wow. And then I found drawings that are dated like November 62. They're still finishing the hole in New Orleans Square. You've you've talked to me about, um, I think on our our previous podcast, but I, I really enjoy the way you describe the layers of activity that has to happen in New Orleans Square. That that place is is as complex as a small Epcot, uh, yeah, the original. Town. You know, I always yeah. thought it really is kind of a small little town because it, it has, uh, you know, it has utilities. It has a food, you know, a, a big food area. It, it produces a lot of food, many meals, um, you know, every day and merchandise and uh, lockers, break areas, um, a really great ride, <laughs> uh, entertainment, you know, a, a, a private club, uh, you know, downstairs, not only is the central kitchen and part of the ride, there's a merchandise storage area. Uh, the first, um, I think it was, no, it was the second one. Uh, it was a tray conveyor. It had a funny name. You know, they always had like a utilidor, right? <laughs> Trayveyor or something like that. Uh, <laughs> And it was a, you know, it was a, it was something that someone had recently invented in the food world, and Walt was, I think, particularly he interested. Wanted he wanted one. <laughs> he got one in uh, the Plaza Inn, uh-huh. and which is weird. It's underground. It goes under the porch. I, I just learned that a few weeks ago. Wow. Uh, so that one went in in '65, and then they, they wanted this. Um, this, I forget what it's called right now at the top of my head. But anyway, uh, this food tray that, that would take trays from the French market, the Creole Cafe, yeah. the Blue Bayou, all to a central cleaning uh-huh. area for the... Oh, dish fair. It was called a dish fair. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And that was there until about nine years ago, the dish fair. Wow. And they finally took the dish fair out. The dish fair, someone told me the dish fair ran through the middle of the Arsenal scene. Oh, really? And I'm like, no. But it did. (laughs) (laughs) Not the middle, but it ran along the side Uh of it. You couldn't see it. It was in a black black, um, duct. Yeah, everything was intertwined. And everything was intertwined. Um, It's beautiful. You know, it's really like a a beautiful thing, I think. So, so much compact, you know, and, you know, some really good thinking. In there, there one thing. Well, I shouldn't go into it, but you know, they they changed that. They made uh, a correction for something that wasn't good back uh, about nine years ago. But it's a little bit off topic. Yeah, no, no problem. 
<laughs> so, hey, um, I want to thank you for um, coming on th- just spontaneously with me, um, kind of celebrating this uh, 50th year of this thing. So I want to I want to end with a, cu- a couple personal stories. So I'll tell one, you tell one, I'll tell one, you tell one. So um, one of the uh, one of my early memories, not early memories, I think, you know, once I got into junior high and I was going to Disneyland on a regular basis, uh, specifically probably with youth groups or school groups or something like that. And hoping to get an opportunity to hold a girl's hand in a line, you know, or on a ride or something like that. Uh, but I very clearly remember getting put onto the Haunted Mansion by myself, probably a first time. I'm probably 12, 13, first time by, by myself. I just watched two of my guy friends get onto the Omnimovers ahead of me, both with girls. And, um, and I just, I remember kind of feeling very alone and it was when they still had, um, uh, characters inside the mansion leaping out at you. And I, to this day, it, it freaked me out so bad Uh, to this day, I'll, I, when I'm going backwards down that hall, I'm like, did they, have they brought it back? There's a little bit of a, if you were to take a picture of me, there's a little lean. Yeah, someday they will, and they should. Um, my, my specific memory, though, is funny. I, I remember it. Uh, I've seen pictures, and I've heard people talk about it being a uh, knight in armor that leaps out. But um, to, when it happened to me, it was like a phantom of the opera type of face with a cloak. And he swung his cloak out at you. That was the the big scare. So uh, how about you? Give me a good Haunted Mansion memory. Well, I went on it for the first time in October 69. And uh, of course, I was thrilled finally to go in there. And 10. So I went with one of my sisters. And um, so it was wonderful. I don't remember seeing the hat box go, so it was gone by then. And um, the Hitchhiking ghosts at the end, there, the, you know, the uh, group of three, the first group of three, they were there, but in the mirrors, they were not. So that came later. So what was in that mirror was um, kind of wispy spirits that followed you along. And I thought, that's kind of weird. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Maybe they could have done something better with that. Wow. I was a critical thinker even back then. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, sure enough, like a year later or so, the hitchhiking ghost came in. But for about another three years, they could never get that thing in sync. Uh, uh, so sometimes they'd be between the two vehicles and you'd have nothing, <laughs> no one in your vehicle, and they'd be floating in the middle. And that, you know, seemed to go on for an awful long time. Yeah. Uh, so that is one of my, me- I know I've got a better memory of it, yeah, yeah, but. Well, <laughs> me, I'll hit you with this one. This is really funny. Just revealed to me recently. My son, uh, he's 18 years old, just moved out of the house. My wife and I are finally empty nesters. We're happy about that and sad about that at the very same time. But our son, uh, early on, very into pirates. We got into pirates early and uh, we're just before Johnny Depp was into pirates. We were having fun with this young young guy dressing up as a pirate and daddy and son playing pirates. So when we would go to the park, we loved going on Pirates of the Caribbean. He, had bra- he was brave. He had guts to go on Pirates of the Caribbean. But there was always this, t- this tension when we would go uh, that he would feel he was... We were like, Daniel, isn't it fun with the pirates? And he would, he wasn't afraid of the pirates, but there was some like trepidation in him. We couldn't get him excited or he, he would, he would hesitate to become excited. Well, it wasn't until this last year we found out. So you naturally 
after Pirates of the Caribbean, you leave through pieces of eight and you turn left and you go to the Haunted Mansion. He's terrified of the Haunted Mansion at those young ages. And so he couldn't enjoy Pirates of the Caribbean because he knew what was coming next, which was the Haunted Mansion. And he told us that. He knew, he recognized that in himself as a six-year-old now, as a 17, 18-year-old, that that was what kept him from enjoying the Pirates. I was four years old when that, you know, the first time I walked up to that house and I couldn't get in that thing fast That's enough. You know? <laughs> just, uh, but the thing that scared me at Disneyland was the rocket jets that when they were up high um, and you'd get in the elevator and there was a no turning back now. They didn't say that, but it's like, oh, it's really high up there. And you felt like there were no seat belts at the time. So it really felt like, you know, you just didn't trust physics. Yeah. <laughs> And I remember being horrified oh, up wow. there. And then, like, I couldn't um, be horrified in front of my friends. Yeah, so, yeah. by you know, by now I'm like 10, 11, 12. And I would get on those things, you know, the elevator, and I would have the worst, yeah. like, <laughs> nearly panic attack. That was my scary attraction at Disney. I loved Snow White when I was, like, three, two, three, four years old. I couldn't get enough of yeah. the Snow White attraction. Um, and I have a kind of another story about, well, so I have this weird thing that happens where I think I, I remember something, like the rumors and everything. Yeah, right, it's like, right. is that just my imagination? <laughs> Was, am I making that up or did this really happen? Yeah. You know, And every time I question myself about that years later, eventually I find out it was what the thing was true. The thing, it was really a thing. That's why I'm always, I'm still like out there about the rumors and everything like, you know, and so, um, Here's one, uh, 4th of July, 1967. And this is like one of my favorite holidays. And I got the box of Red Devil fireworks and everything, but it's going to be the first 4th of July where my dad can't you know, participate because he's got to work at stupid Disneyland <laughs> on the stupid Pirates of the Caribbean ride. And uh, this is upsetting me, but okay. So, you know, that's cool. We uh, go over to some friends. And, um, and then around sunset, Suddenly, my dad shows up. <laughs> and I'm like, yay, you know, but why are you here? <laughs> and he said, well, they had to close the ride down because one of the pirates caught on fire. I'm like, really? Wow. Well, good. You know, what pirate was it? And he said, the one on the, um, in the burning city with his arm around the lamppost. Oh, that's weird. Like, you know, Cool. So we do 4th of July, and that's great. And I always remember that. And then years later, I'm like, audio animatronics don't catch on fire. You know, Disneyland doesn't have fires, you know? Like, oh, he made that up. He called in sick, and he made up this story, this cockamamie story about, you know, a pirate catching on fire. And then I'm reading an interview, you know, 10 years later, 10 years ago, uh, by Alice Davis. And she's saying, um, I recommended that all of the pirate costumes have, to have a backup costume. Because you can't just have one costume. There's so many different things. Like there's oil leaks that happen and all these things. And the guy in charge of accounting didn't want to pay for it. And then one night, one of the pirates catches on fire. 
the pirate on the lamppost in the burning city. And I get this call first thing in the morning. Alice, Alice, one of the pirates caught on fire. Come, you know, come in. We need. Oh, and the sprinklers went on, so the a lot of the costumes got damaged from from that. Um, what are we going to do? Can you give it give us an estimate on how long it'll take to? Well, she had made a backup set already, <laughs> and they had it. Yeah, and they had it open that night. You know, the next the next day or the next evening. So it was only down for like a day, but. Better than that, the story was true. <laughs> and the pirate, if you, uh, you've seen the picture of some Maple guys working on that yeah. lamppost guy. That's Roger Brogy and uh, John Frankie and Dave Swenninger. And that's the replacement pirate. Oh. That's the second pirate. Wow. Yeah. So there's other stories I have like that that, you know, we'll save for next time. Yeah. Uh, but that, that, that's one of my favorites. <laughs> Well, um, uh, I'm just going to, uh, I'm going to cut us loose, but, uh, I know the listeners don't want us to, but, uh, we, uh, we're going to, um, head, head on home, but, uh, we're going to have some good, happy nightmares with some grim grinning ghosts tonight. Thank you, Tom, for being, uh, on the program again. And, uh, um, how, how can people uh, follow your adventures? How can people get into watching you? Anything like that? I post my some of my Disney stuff on Twitter. Tom, Tom K. Morris. Simple as that. Yeah, simple as that. And then I post pretty picture, pretty pictures, and sometimes Disney on Instagram under the same Tom K. Morris. Okay. And then maybe a book will come out in a year or two on uh, the. Um, I, I want to call it Imagineering in the Beginning. Because it really is focused on the formative years of imaginary, but it's also the undis- undiscovered. It, they, it's stories that uh, you know are ready to be rediscovered, and they haven't been told mm-hmm. with personalities that, who you haven't heard of, uh, and many from the film industry, many who are at the end of their careers, and many who are at the beginning of their mm-hmm. careers in film, are part of this story, and many other interesting folks. <laughs> Well, we can't wait, and uh, thank you so much for tonight. Uh, you want to go get a coffee? Sound good? Yeah, Let's go get a coffee. Or a, beer. or a beer. Let's get a beer. Thanks, Tom. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. Tom's stories betray an aura of experience and know-how in this industry, and there's so much to disinter, uh, I mean, learn from him. We hope to have him back again very, very soon. Well, I'd better get this boat back to the dock before Mel finds out I sailed without him. So long, folks. Hurry back. The Themed Attraction Podcast is hosted by Freddie Martin and Mel McGowan. Leave us a review on iTunes Podcasts and share the show with your friends. You know, folks, we just cannot thank you enough your generosity of your time to listen to our show Uh, we know you have a lot of choices and uh, we keep finding out with the reviews that you leave us on itunes just how much you enjoy it and your kind words just give us such great encouragement so thank you thank you thank you our guest was former disney imagineering creative executive tom morris you can follow him on twitter and instagram at tom k morris Get access to more stories and interviews at themedattraction.com. 
you can find all kinds of great uh, background in many of your favorite attractions there on that website that's made by theme park designers for theme park designers. Connect with Mel by email via mel at storylandstudios.com or follow him on Twitter at Mel McGowan and Instagram at Visioneer. You can find me at freddymartin.net and follow my adventures at skipperfreddy on Instagram and Twitter. Our theme music was composed by Rob Watson. Other music provided by The Lost Dogs. This episode was designed and produced by the one and only Dr. Barry Hill. Find him at barryrhill.com. You know, Barry is fascinated with the supernatural. He recently started to explore sections of town where he's most likely to encounter ghosts. He hasn't had good luck, though. Last week was his first ghost sighting, but the only thing he saw was the ghost's backside as it disappeared around the corner. It was a dead end. Thanks for listening, folks.